This is the third part of the discussion of the topic of compassion and how I wish that it could have all been done in one sitting. It just didn't work that way. It would have required us to stay here for three hours, which would have been fine with me, but I ended up preaching, I think, to a lot of empty pews. So part of the difficulty of breaking up a message is um, people perhaps weren't here last week and didn't hear, or the week before, didn't hear one or, or the other parts of it, and it all builds together. And, and really what we're going to be looking at this morning is kind of the application of the teaching of the prior two weeks. So uh, this message is not, not a lot of uh, exposition of Scripture, to be sure. It's kind of the application of the principles that were drawn from the, from the exposition of the Scriptures over the prior two weeks. We are in the middle, just to orient you again, we are in the middle of this, this uh, series entitled Living as a Minority Community in a Hostile World. This whole series was launched in response to the really uh, incredible seismic movements that are going on around us in our own nation and, yea, around us in the world. The increasing hostility that is growing against the Christian faith and how are we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in light of the circumstances when the world as many of us have known it and that we have grown up in is no longer the place where we live. Things are changing. The ground is moving. And so how do we How do we respond to that? How do we find an anchor for our soul? How do we live out our Christian faith in that kind of environment? So I've been working away at this, and we arrive here at the topic of compassion. And uh, we said that there were four observations about compassion that we wanted to look at, and they are of growing importance to us as a minority community living in an increasingly hostile world. And so three weeks ago, we looked at the first of them, which was that compassion was the culture of Israel. Compassion was the culture of Israel. And what we noted was Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Moses, reveals his name, which reveals his character to Moses. And involved in that, he says that he is compassionate. God is compassionate. And because God is compassionate, it is the very nature and character of God. Indeed, it is, is um, part of his name. His people are to be compassionate. And so when God established a nation in ancient Israel and he gave them a, a law code by which they could live, he established their civilization, their society. We know it as the Mosaic law. He wove into that the principles of compassion. And that's what we looked at. And what we noted coming from that were really two basic things. Number one, that when you came under the protection of the wings of the God of Israel, there was an obligation among the people of God to care for you, that you would be cared for. The second thing we noted and is of equal importance, that the way you would be cared for would not contradict your humanity because it would provide an ability for you to be gainfully employed, to work and to live out what it means, part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So it was not a system of handouts. It was a system of work that provided for people and enabled them to to maintain their human dignity as they provided for their own needs. 
We then last week looked at the second observation, which was compassion as the model of the early church. And what we noted last week was that the early church, which grew out of the principles of the Mosaic law, found woven into the fabric and actions of the early church those same basic ideas of compassion. And what we noted last time are are four angles. That's how we broke it down. We said there were four angles that we wanted to, to quickly look at, and I'll just remind you of them again before we get to the material this morning. But those four angles were, number one, the helping of those in need the basic helping of those in need. And we we noted that it began when the church was born, and that where the Scripture says in Acts 2 that they had all things in common, and, and whoever had need was cared for. And so the people cared for one another. They helped those in need. Second angle we looked at was the ongoing care of the vulnerable. There were those who had the one-time needs, and then there were the vulnerable, those who had the ongoing needs, and they were often the widows and the orphans of the church. They had no means of support, no financial support available to them. And so for those who had taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, who were part of the people of God, part of the church of the living God, they were cared for as needed on an ongoing basis. Their families were to provide the, the care. They were the first line of defense. If they were young, they were to, be, to work. But if those things were not available to them, the church had an obligation to care for the helpless among them. And that's exactly what they did. Third, we noted, third angle was what we called famine relief. And that is that the ancient world was rocked in the early decades of the church, was rocked by a series of droughts which brought about severe famine. And as the famine rolled across uh, the world of the Near East, uh, various parts uh, suffered tremendously. And so in a demonstration of the gospel and the unity brought about by the gospel of Jew and Gentile in one body, the body of Christ, those that had means gave to the famine relief of those who were severely suffering, particularly those who lived in Jerusalem. By that time, the Jewish community had excommunicated them, had pushed out the believers. They were no longer considered even to be a schismatic part of Judaism. They were considered to be full-blown heretics, and they were driven out. And, and because they were driven out, all access to the, to the material support of the, of the nation of Israel, their employment opportunities, family relationships were severed, all kinds of hardship came upon them. And so the Gentiles gave, and they gave generously to support those who were in need, the famine relief. The fourth angle we looked at last time was what we called the principles of compassionate giving, the principles. And what we noted in the New Testament is there are no prescribed percentages, no set fixed mathematical amounts. Under the Mosaic law, there were. There was the system of the tithe. But that system of the tithe was confined to the particular society in which they lived. It was a tax-raising mechanism. For in ancient Israel, the, the civil authority and the ecclesiastical authority were combined in one. And so the systems of the tithe, which if you add up all the various tithes, comes probably to about 23%, those were for the support of the various 
societal systems. But in the New Testament, because it is a, a body drawn from people groups all over the world, the, there were no fixed percentages. What was to guide and govern the giving of the people of God was a compassionate, generous heart. And if there is one principle, I think, that steps out from all of this, it is what Paul expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the principle of equality or equilibrium. And specifically what that means is that there are not to be among the people of God within a congregation, there are not to be those who are, who are so wealthy that they are building bigger and bigger barns to store their stuff while others are starving. But there is to be an equilibrium. There is to be a care such that no one falls by the wayside. That is the principle of compassionate giving. And so that takes us to what I want to cover with you this morning, which is number three, observation, that compassion necessitates preparation. Compassion necessitates preparation. If we are going to be in a position to, to extend ourselves compassionately to those in need, we need to think about it ahead of time. And we need to do more than just think about it. We need to actually make real and serious preparation ahead of time. Now, beloved, I, I don't share these kinds of statistics with you in order to frighten you, but in, but in order to, to jolt you awake if you've been sleeping about the state of the world. This world is absolutely drowning in debt. Drowning in it. The United States acknowledges 20, well, soon to be, by the time there's a new president sworn in, there will be $20 trillion of debt. It will have doubled in the last eight years. But that is only the debt that is acknowledged. There is a far greater level that has been promised and not yet accomplished booked on the, the balance sheet, as it were, from an accounting point of view. That is, that, the, that our society has made commitments to future gen, existing and future generations that will need to be paid. Now, I'm talking about things like Social Security. I'm talking about things like Medicare. I'm talking about things like pension plans and things like that. And when those numbers are accounted for, it becomes incredibly frightening. USdebtclock.org, you can check it out on your own. It is, a, it is a, a group that kind of keeps track of these growing numbers. They say at the moment there is about $66 trillion of debt. Not the $20 trillion that's, that's the outstanding uh, you know, treasury T-bills and, and, uh, and long-term treasury bonds. But it also includes these, these obligations that have been made that need to be paid. That means for the average family in America, they are now $800,000 in debt. $800,000 in debt. That's your family share of the obligation. Now, there's a thing about debt you need to know debt has to be repaid. There's really only two ways that debt can be dealt with. It is either repaid or it is repudiated. 
It is repaid or it is repudiated. By repudiated, what I mean is it is defaulted on. It is defaulted on. So to say, well, what does it matter that I'm $800,000 in debt? Well, it matters this. That if, if the federal and state and local governments were to operate from this point forward on a balanced budget, meaning no longer spending more than they take in, which is the way families are supposed to operate, we would need to contract our standard of living sufficiently to be able to pay off $800,000 above and beyond. That level of debt, my friends, is unpayable. It is unpayable. You could not contract your standard of living sufficiently to pay it off. That leaves you with repudiation. Repudiation. Meaning to say, yes, I promised it, but I'm sorry, I can't deliver the promise. Now, there have been all kinds of very sacred promises made with regard to the care for people's futures, pensions, Social Security, Medicaid. Medicare and so forth. So what happens? What happens? Is it a repudiation? Perhaps. Perhaps. But there is a third way out, and the third way out is to debase the money supply, to inflate the money supply such that you can pay your obligations in an increasingly worthless currency. That is, the, that is the path that most governments through history take, and it is the path that our government has set itself upon. Alan Greenspan, former head of the Federal Reserve, before Congress in testimony about these things, said that we will never repudiate our obligations, that we will repay them and guarantee that we will repay them, what we cannot guarantee is the quality of the money by which we will repay them. That's the way we find ourselves. This is the world we live in, and it's not just us. It is all over the world. Never in the history of mankind has the entire world been bankrupt. But we are. But we are. World debt is about three times the GDP of the entire world. This is where we are. When the Roman Empire collapsed in the 5th century, the church did not go out of existence. The church did not disappear. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Jesus could foresee and did foresee the collapse of the Roman Empire and the incredible um, pain and, and dislocation that it brought upon the world. And so the church of Jesus Christ will survive. It will go on. But it won't likely go on in the way that you and I are used to it being. So that takes us to our responsibilities in a broken world with regard to compassion. And the need for compassion that is going to be much greater than what we presently see. So as we begin to talk about the preparation, I think it is helpful if we were to break it down into what I call individual and institutional preparation. 
individual preparation and institutional preparation. I'm not going to address it all with regard to governmental uh, authorities and things like that. That's way be over my pay grade. I just want to, I want to deduce the, the principles of the heart of God from the word of God and begin to think about how to be, apply them here in the 21st century, and in particular at Foothill Bible Church. And I think we begin by looking at individual preparedness. So how do we prepare individually? How do I prepare individually for the coming storm? When is it going to come? I don't know. I have no idea. It could come pretty soon. Or it could be 10 years from now. I don't know. But I'll just tell you this, that mathematically, in the way things are going, and the, the way debt compounds upon itself, I would suggest to you that it is far closer than 10 years. So, how do we prepare individually? Number one, we pursue two great commandments. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And verse 36. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36. A lawyer came to Jesus and asked him a question, testing him. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That is, the entire Mosaic law can be summarized up underneath these two great commandments. The love of God with the totality of our being and a, and a love for our neighbor equal to the love that we have for our own selves. Generous, compassionate giving follows a personal dedication to the Lord. It requires getting our spiritual house in order. Look with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 just to illustrate this reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Where Paul there is speaking to the church at Corinth, a very wealthy church that has, that has given him fits through the years and that has promised a very generous contribution for the famine relief of the saints in Jerusalem. But Paul's a little worried that they're not going to come through, that their good intentions will just not materialize. And so he writes ahead of time to them in order to, to motivate them to follow through on their commitment, on their promise. And he speaks to them here in chapter 8 about the incredible generosity of the Macedonian churches. That is the churches of northern Greece who were poor churches and yet had given with an abundance. And he does that in order to motivate the wealthy Corinthians. But what I want you to see when he speaks about them in verse 5 is what moved in the hearts of the, of the wealthy or the poor Macedonians that enabled them to give with such generosity. And he says, and this, not as we had expected, 
their, their large contribution. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's the point I want you to see. How did the poor in Macedonia give so generously to the famine relief of Jerusalem? Number one, they gave of themselves to the Lord. They loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. And then it was a natural thing to do, to even out of their extreme poverty, to find something to give. And so it begins in the pursuit of the two great commandments. Secondly, in terms of individual preparedness, we need to be systematic about it. We need to be able to, we need to put aside something regularly. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we see the principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. Paul is again instructing the wealthy Corinthians how to go about raising a relief offering for the poor of Jerusalem. And he says, verse 2, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Good intentions only become reality when we act upon them. And we, and we act upon them in small incremental ways. We take small steps, regular steps, faithful steps, and that's how we bring about the obedience. And so the individual preparedness, the application of this for me, for us, is in light of what we believe is coming We need to take small, faithful, regular um, uh, steps to prepare. We need to take incremental steps. Third, applicationally, is to pull in your spending and live within your means. It is to pull in your spending and live within your means. Again, if we do not do this, we will have nothing to give. If we continue to live at or above our means, we will have nothing but good intentions. And good intentions will not fill any hungry bellies. So we have to say no. We have to say no. We have to deny ourselves things we want, things we desire, even things we deserve. And beloved, it's hard. It's really, really hard because we have been trained in conspicuous consumption. Our entire economic system in this country is built on conspicuous consumption. With planned obsolescence. I was telling somebody at breakfast this morning, my iPhone, two years old, guess what? Yeah, it doesn't work so good anymore. But I am not giving Apple another $700 for a phone that blows up. I'm thinking about two tin cans and a string, actually. But we have been trained to think we've got to have it. We've got to have it. But listen, contentment. Contentment is a secret, and secrets have to be learned. The human heart is not naturally content. Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says exactly that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and following. 
Paul writes there, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You see that? Paul says, I've learned it. It wasn't natural to me. I wasn't born with this ability. I learned it. I know how to get along with humble means, and I, know, I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Remember I told you contentment is a secret. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. By the way, that's the proper context for that verse. Not eye patches that show through your football helmet face guard, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What all things, Paul? I can live with contentment. I can live with contentment through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment is a secret that has to be learned. It is a spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual discipline. Fourth, in terms of individual preparedness, is is to pray that God would enlarge our hearts. Just pray that God would enlarge our hearts. You remember a part of this series we talked about prayer, right? The power of prayer. We need to pray that God would work in us and help us begin to love others in this church the way Christ loves them. To expand our heart towards them. To have a greater love for them and a greater love for the body. To begin to see one another as a family combined together. Pray for God to enlarge your heart. And fifth, practice biblical hospitality. Practice biblical hospitality. Practice now when the pain threshold is low. So that we will begin to learn the disciplines of hospitality. We will understand the sacrifices of hospitality. We will embrace the glory of hospitality. So that when the need comes to to take someone into our home. That we'll be ready to do so. If you were going to run a marathon... You want to run to the Boston Marathon, right? The Boston Marathon, April the 19th. You wouldn't wait until April the 18th to go out and start training, right? Go out on the 18th, put on your sneakers, you know, a couple of toe touches, and just go out there and, you know, jog a little, and then you're going to go for it, right? That's not how one completes in a marathon. It's a long training process. And that's what we need. With regard to hospitality, we begin now training incrementally, small, bigger challenges going forward so that we're ready. So we're ready. Individual preparedness. Then there is institutional preparedness. Institutional preparedness. And when I say institutional, what I mean is is this body corporately with these facilities that God has entrusted to us. We are in an amazing place, beloved. Because of the faithfulness of God's people through the decades, we are meeting on an amazing five-acre piece of property with numerous buildings, all in relatively uh, good condition, entirely paid for. 
There is not a dime of debt associated with this ministry anywhere. That is rare. That is absolutely rare in this country. And so, so we've got this, and it's a stewardship. It's, a, it's an entrustment that has been given to us. And, and so when those dark days come, we need to be ready to respond. And, and this is part of what we have to, to bring to bear. So I've got a few ideas. These ideas may or may not have any merit at all. Okay? I will acknowledge that right up front. They are merely ideas. What I am about to do is throw some rocks into the pond and let the ripples go out. I am not prescribing what must be done. I am merely suggesting possibilities. My hope is that because we all share the Spirit of God that in a collective way of wisdom, that we are going to be able to come up with some really innovative ways to help when called upon to do so. Now, there are two, essentially two kinds of people. There are the doers and there are the thinkers. The doers and the thinkers. The doers are ready, fire, aim. The thinkers are, eh. let's, uh, let's, let's study it a little longer. Let's gather a little more data. Let's talk to a few more people. Let's examine all the possible pitfalls associated with it. Let's put it in a committee where it will die. <laughs> okay? Those are the thinkers. Because for them, thinking about it is where it's at. Doing's risky. For the doers, it's, we just got to do something. It's better to do anything than nothing. So, we need both. We need doers and we need thinkers. And, and we need to learn how to operate together as doers and thinkers, which means we need to be patient with each other, right? Humble our own hearts and, and trust in the Spirit to work through that. I mean, some of you, you know, just judging by the looks I saw on a few faces, you've got within your own marriage relationships doers and thinkers. <laughs> yeah. By the way, if you're newly married, you better figure that out really quickly. <laughs> okay, who's the doer? Who's the thinker? Otherwise, big-time frustrations. So, having said that, okay, so, so for the doers out here, these things I'm going to mention, okay, uh, you're ready to, you know, tomorrow morning start. The thinkers, I know, you want to you really think about this a while, okay, and that's okay. All right, that's enough. Um, say it again? Caveats, thank you. That is the right word. I have covered myself, I believe. So here we go. Number one, institutionally, would be to share this facility with other displaced congregations. Share the facility with other displaced congregations. There are a number of churches that 
are on the edge, facility-wise. And as things go more difficult for them, some are going to find they cannot continue to meet where they meet, for a multitude of reasons, financial certainly being one. We have this incredible facility that we could open up hospitably to other believers, other congregations. Now, remember the Sermon on Hospitality, right? Hospitality is costly. Hospitality is time-consuming. Hospitality is fatiguing. And hospitality is privacy-denying. So to open this facility to the use by other congregations would be inconvenient at best. But it's a possibility. It's a possibility. Yesterday, the Red Cross met here with a number of of, uh, individuals from uh, Foothill and so forth as we began to explore the possibility of this becoming a a Red Sox. Yeah, Red Sox. No, they're out of it. (laughs) Yeah, they're out of it. I had such hope this year, too, you know. (laughs) Go Cubs. Okay. A Red Cross evacuation center. A Red Cross evacuation center. Another idea. Another possibility. We could take a lesson from Joseph... Where when Egypt was facing famine, right? Remember Joseph's, um, or actually it was Pharaoh's vision that Joseph interpreted. It was seven years of plenty followed by what? Seven years of famine. And so what did they do? They incrementally stored up during the years of plenty that there would be something there in the years of famine. So leveraging off that kind of example is the possibility of establishing some kind of food bank here. On these facilities. Now these aren't ideas like, whoa, wow, no church ever thought of that before. (laughs) The possibility of establishing some kind of food bank. Here's one that's a little more out there. Establishing a community garden. Establishing a community garden. Oh, somebody's a gardener. Remember the Old Testament, right? God provided for the people by instructing the landowners, don't glean to the edges of your field. Leave the edges in the corners so the poor among you could come, express their humanity, work and glean for themselves and have something to eat. So the possibilities of some kind of a community garden, for example. Let me take it up one more step. We could replace our present landscape with edible landscape. We pour a lot of money into water, watering things that we have to cut and throw away. (laughs) They're pretty. What about if some of that landscape was converted into something that produced something that people could eat? Edible landscape. The possibilities of some kind of a thrift store operation. Where clothing could be made available to those who are in need. 
Fourth, creating opportunities for those in need to work and get paid for their work. This is something I think they could have all kinds of possibilities. Those who are, who are small businessmen here who own your own business, perhaps there's opportunities there for you to creatively think about these things. Certainly for us as a congregation, providing opportunity for those who are work to, to work and get paid for their work. And how could we pay them? Well, here's an idea. We could pay them in, in produce from the edible landscape that they would work to maintain. I can just tell you, weeding gardens is work. Weeding gardens is work. There are one-time gifts, number five, one-time gifts of charity for those who are passing through. One-time gifts of charity for those who are passing through. There is a homeless problem in our community, to be sure. There are a number of people and a growing number of people who are living in what would be considered a homeless situation. I believe it is only going to get worse as people lose their ability to work, as the possibility of the medical system and its its mind-subduing drugs become unavailable to them, that there are going to be more and more people living on the street. It's going to be, I believe, a very large problem. Now, the way things are presently configured, you can kind of do it. You can kind of live on the street. Because there's still systems in place. There's still governmental systems in place that provide enough for you to make a go of it. By the way, someone was telling me, someone reliable was telling me that uh, there are more and more people now living in the, in the forests and the mountains, living in tents and old RVs and things. But I believe that there is going to be actually migrations happening. And we don't have to look very far in our own history as a nation to see such things. Do you know what an oki is? Some of you do because you are okies. <laughs> right, Billy? <laughs> in the 1930s, a series of droughts hit Oklahoma and that particular area of the United States year after year after year. And as those droughts devastated the soil, killed the crops, the winds began to whip up the dust. And there were massive dust storms. It was called the Dust Bowl. In fact, the dust clouds went as far as New York City. I've seen pictures from the harbor of New York City where the New York skyline can't be, is not visible because of the dust clouds originating in Oklahoma that have blown across the country. That was less than 100 years ago. Less than 100 years ago. The Okies are what was referred to those who were forced to leave because there was no ability anymore to make a go of it. 
And so there was massive population migrations that happened. Many of them came to California, actually. Well, beloved, if it gets as bad as it could, we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see migrations of population. Newsflash. Southern California is a desert. It's a desert. As long as you put water on it, it's beautiful. Once you stop, the land is not particularly productive anymore. How could we help those who are passing through? Well, here's some ideas. We could provide overnight lodging in our gymnasium. We could provide uh, food and money for the road. Not enough to care for them the rest of their lives. Enough to get them to the next place. Could serve them a meal to help them on their way. Just a few possibilities. Institutionally, as we prepare number six, is what we have, what we call the Benevolence Fund. Again, through the generosity of God's people through the years, we have had the ability to maintain a rather generous benevolence fund. These are funds that have been put aside to help those within the body or closely associated with the body, and it is overseen by the deacons who find themselves in a difficult place. We're not prepared to make somebody's mortgage payment so that they can stay in their house. If they can't afford their home, they're going to have to sell it. But we will make sure that nobody goes hungry. Well, because of the generosity of God's people, we have not taken a collection for our benevolence fund in a number of years. It just didn't seem to make sense to, to, to collect additional monies into a benevolence fund when we were not spending out everything we had. But looking ahead, we believe that the, that the, the draws on that benevolence fund are going to significantly increase, and therefore it's time now to take another benevolence offering. So as has been our practice in the past, on our Thanksgiving service, November the 20th, the service of November the 20th, we will take a benevolence offering. I tell you this now, so that why? So that you could make some preparation for it. So you don't show up on November 20th and go, oh, I should have, would have, could have. Set something aside and give into the benevolence fund. Compassion was the culture of Israel. Compassion was the model of the early church. Compassion necessitates preparation. And fourth and finally, as we close it out for this morning, compassion must extend beyond this age to the age to come. Compassion must extend beyond this age to the age to come. Jesus said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8 36. So as we seek to alleviate as best we can or help alleviate human suffering, we must never, ever, 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 ever lose sight of this important reality that man's biggest problem does not lie in this life. Man's biggest problem lies in the age to come. For it is appointed unto man to die once, and then what? The judgment. The judgment. 
Do not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill body and soul. People must be reconciled to God. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 15, something incredibly important. Verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. Verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. We are the divine institution established by God, purchased with the blood of his own son, for the purpose of bringing the truth of God into a world that desperately needs to hear it and believe it. And we are the only ones who can do that. Everything else can be done by someone else. Only we can do this. And so it is our reason for existence. It is why that when Christ has saved us, he does not take us immediately into his presence. We are the unique guardian of the truth. The church of the living God. We have the truth. We're to guard it, and we guard it by preaching it. By preaching it. Now, individually, members of the church may become involved in all kinds of other activities, good and noble activities, to be sure. But the one and fundamental thing that must happen for us institutionally is we must continue to preach the gospel. We must continue to make disciples. And see, the danger in seeking to alleviate human need is that when you you get so focused on alleviating human need, you forget about the gospel. And that, by the way, is the history of the liberal denominations This is how they went off the rails. They did not value the truth of the word of God. They did not teach the truth of the word of God. And eventually they do not have the word of God. But they continue to be involved in good and beneficial humanitarian concerns. So there's much we can do, much we must do. But above all, we must continue to make disciples. Because as one writer said, beloved, there is something worse than death, hell. And there is something better than human flourishing, heaven. And only the preaching of the cross enables a person to escape one and gain the other. May God give us wisdom as we seek to apply the truth of his word in a world that increasingly needs to hear it. Let's pray. Father, may you work in and among your people by your spirit to apply the truth to each and every one of our hearts and minds.
Our Father, we pray that we would not be slaves of a spirit of fear. So we talk about the state of the world, the state of the world economy, the reality of an unsustainable debt burden that will crush many in its path. Father, we confess there is, can well up within us a desire to want to run away and hide under a rock. But Father, that's what the unbelievers do in the book of Revelation. They, they call out for the mountains to fall on them and hide them. That's not who we are. We pray that you would deepen our love for Christ. That you would deepen our love consequentially for one another. We pray that our hearts would grow in compassion. We pray that you would help us to to be strategic and creative in in thinking about how to help those in need now and, and the many more that are likely to come across our paths. We pray, Father, as we think about these things, that you would help us to be informed by the Scriptures that we would not assume merely the prevailing societal notion of a welfare state in which the productivity of the industrious is siphoned away and handed over to the indolent. Father, may you enable us to help really help people. And in it all and through it all, may we never lose sight of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.